0: I'm Matt Mazzucca, and this is The Barneys Podcast, the show that celebrates fashion, style, culture, and most of all, personality. I'm Barneys Creative Director. Barneys is especially known for our store windows. We use the windows as a space to push boundaries and make unexpected statements. Statements like not putting fashion in the window at all. Basically, we don't like to compromise, and neither does the designer, Rick Owens.
1: While well, I was kind of assumed it would remain very niche, I would be broke pretty much forever. And the whole idea right from the very beginning was to be completely uncompromising. Rick started his own line in 1994 and has remained
0: independent ever since. For a designer, that's pretty rare. He has a really unconventional approach, which is why he resonates with me so much. He's just had a retrospective in Milan which highlighted the most iconic designs from his career. It also included an enormous installation of a glittering turd which we are definitely going to talk about, especially because we've just recreated it for our Barney's Madison Avenue windows.
1: Yeah, it's not it's not Christmas windows, that's for sure. <laughs> it could be Christmas. <laughs> um,
0: Should be Christmas.
1: That it's it's actually kind of inspired by Piero Manzoni, the Italian um, Arte Povera artist. I've been looking at Arte Povera a lot recently, and and I and just the fact that I was invited to do something in Italy. And I guess at this point, Italy has kind of become a second home to me. So to be asked to do a a retrospective in Italy, it just made a lot of sense. And they didn't really give me any resistance for anything. I mean, they just, um, and that was the other good reason to do it there, because I I would hate to be interpreted by somebody um, and being able to to kind of execute and create and um, edit and curate a, an, a retrospective on your own. It's a very profoundly validating thing because it ends up kind of in a way being your epitaph. You are saying, this is who I was and this is how I want to be remembered. So it becomes very profound so the giant sculpture in the installation that we've been
0: calling a giant turd is actually uh, an earthwork. Where did the idea come from?
1: I actually, it was a line that I wrote a long time ago. Uh, I said I would lay a black glittering turd on the white landscape of conformity, which is very shamelessly bombastic and uh, very adolescent. But, but I mean, it, it it's a pretty good line. <laughs> yeah. And when and when I got this beautiful white art deco space to do this showing, i I felt like, um it it, it was it wasn't the white landscape of conformity, but it was establishment. And it's not that I wanted to insult anybody, but I wanted to have a very primal element in in the press notes, i I avoided calling it a turd because. I didn't want to insult anybody and I didn't, I really didn't want to be disrespectful. You know, you say turd and automatically gets comical and I didn't want it to really be comical, but because it really was supposed to represent something more urgent, more of a uh, kind of a creative primal force that we all have. And I didn't want to just make it out of, ecologically um unfriendly foam so it was actually manufactured by this company that does water parks and they do the landscaping for water parks and um it was made out of concrete and lumber and um i had been collecting my hair for i don't know 10 years or something, at least wads of my hair for my brush. And I never threw them away because it always, I always thought, Oh, there's something kind of weird and great about just wads of your hair. I mean, why, you know, it's kind of creepy, but it's kind of, you know, this might come in handy. (laughs) (laughs) So I included the hair in the mixture that they used for this sculpture and Lilies, because um, I always have a lot of lilies around, and the sand from the Lido Beach in Venice, because I lived there half the year, and that's the place that just ended up feeling very much like home, and eventually I'm probably going to be buried there, so it, that felt important. So, And then there's leather, There's there's all sorts of stuff in there that I felt made sense. I thought it was beautiful.
0: If you had to do it again, would you have done anything differently?
1: Well, if I ever do a retrospective again to tell you the truth i think I think it would probably be a lot um oh look at listen to me, planning my next ret- retrospective that. <laughs> isn't that Is't that cocky <laughs> um, i would <laughs> I would do something a lot more subtle. I think it would be more intimate and it would be like a little bit more based on craft and nuance. This one was dramatic and kind of full on, but that's kind of what I was in the mood for right now. I mean, you know, to tell your whole story, you have to get something beyond just pretty clothes. You have to express an ethos. I I would assume you got, you had to pull things
0: together to kind of make complete stories within each look because of what you had available, what you had archived.
1: Well, that's just it. I never... I never considered an archive at the beginning. I never thought we'd last long enough to, have an ar- to need an archive. So all, a lot of the first samples or the original runway pieces were just sold. I mean, they didn't actually even really belong to me at that point. And I, I never even really considered saving them. I just, I just didn't have that mindset. I think archives are something that young designers think about right off the bat now, then, you know, 20 something years ago, it was survival. I mean, I was, I was living in LA and I wasn't really part of the fashion industry there. And I wasn't really part of the fashion industry in New York, much less Paris or Europe. So it was really uh, just commerce. It was, it was really making stuff that I thought I could sell to pay the rent. Now when I say that though I mean I knew exactly what I wanted to sell and I knew that or I assumed that it would not be that successful because it was a very specific aesthetic and it was very uncompromising and that was kind of fine that was that was the idea I mean um you know the other thing when I walked the show in Milan it was um interesting cuz you know you go
0: to exhibitions fashion exhibitions anything everything's always like labeled detailed what what size men is a men's show women's show of the year i i find like there's a, a, a ego involved in that kind of process a little bit you know because you're really kind of like telling the story and not letting someone experience it and i think some of the people who view the show that i was surrounded by i'm like they <laughs> i had no idea what they were looking at um like whether it was meant for a man or a woman and i think that's cool and i, and I, I like being honest to say you know like asking questions like that, a guy, I don't know. And that's, that's, it's still beautiful, but I'm curious. What do you think of like how younger generations look at that now? Because there's such a push to be gender inclusive and not be specific. But, you know, I still think that we are very much that as a culture.
1: Well, I, that the whole gender neutrality thing that people talk about now, it's just kind of bullshit because it's been done harder and stronger before. Um, like in the 70s and in, you know, Japanese kabuki culture. I mean, it's the whole gender thing, gender blending has, we've seen it happen in, in such stronger ways. The other thing is we had the mannequins custom made and originally the female mannequin had a more feminine face and I actually asked them to reduce the man's head And we ended up using a man's head for both men's and women's mannequins. That ended up making the women look kind of stoic. So when you're talking about the gender blending, I mean, it was, it was, I don't know if it was really calculated, but it was very deliberate. Yeah.
0: No, I, and I think that that's going to resonate and it creates a dialogue that's good because I think those dialogues are super important.
1: Well, what we really want to promote is tolerance, tolerance of everybody's choices, of tolerance of, of aesthetic choices. Well, and beyond that tolerance of sexual choices. So something like this, I mean, even though it's a very small gesture, it can influence, I I agree with you. It can kind of influence people's attitude ever so slightly. And that effort is, it's worth making that effort. I saw uh, a quote from you, and it was about um, the first time you saw
0: the Diamond Dogs uh, David Bowie cover, and I was laughing because yeah. I had a moment. I remember when, like my parents took me to a record store, and I saw Prince uh, Purple Rain cover, and it made me so uncomfortable. And I was with my dad, and I knew he didn't want he want me looking at it, and. Um, you know, there's a million reasons, I think, when you're younger
1: to look at the Diamond Dogs cover and get a little uncomfortable, but it's so beautiful as well. And that's what I wanted to be for somebody. I want to be that Diamond Dogs album cover. And sometimes I get the feeling in, a, in my own little way, I've been able to do that a little bit. Um, because... Those things just were such a release. It's such a release when you see that. I mean, of course it's uncomfortable at first because you're, you know, you're thinking, oh my God, I've been exposed. Somebody just exposed my, my inner self in front of my parents. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, um, um, <laughs> but then ultimately, you know, just, just that uh, amazing liberation of knowing you're not alone. Uh, that's, that's, um, if if I could do that for somebody else, that's, that'll be a life worth living. It's really um fascinating that people there
0: are this ideas of subcultures but it's not even a subculture it's it's a cultural uh, driver so it's it's pretty amazing and it starts in a place like seeing like a david bowie album and then it migrates into the work and then the then the experience and your travels um it's pretty pretty impressive
1: well the pessimist in me looks at that and thinks oh gee i think we have built i think something has happened that has created a wall for a lot of people that they can't see past that wall of i think there are some people that see that and they automatically roll their eyes because it's not kind of their their you know they see this thing and um it's easy to kind of dismiss And I feel like that kind of restricts a lot of people. I think we, it, every time, you know, I built it, I try, I wanted to build some kind of community, um, based on inclusion and you end up by everyone kind of uniting and, and kind of creating this force that excludes people, but it's just kind of the other side of that coin, which is funny. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Last time I saw you, you gave me a copy of Butt
0: Muscle, which is this video featuring a performance artist named Christine. Christine's been your muse for a long time. How did you two meet?
1: Christine, I, I ran across Christine on some internet blog, one of those weird internet things that, you know, <laughs> when you go down an internet k-hole and I just found her years and years and years ago. And that was when I was doing, um, I was doing a nightclub in Paris because I missed sleaze. They they don't have sleazy nightclubs in Paris. So I thought, well, I'm just going to bring my own. And I named it the spotlight club after this hustler tranny bar on Hollywood Boulevard. And it really, that place was really picturesque and, um, and I mean Wait, the spotlight was 24-7, right? Yeah, it was. So
0: you could uh, you could I hung out there too. <laughs> I even hung out. That place was the best. Yeah.
1: The best. They could start serving alcohol again at six in the morning. So um <laughs> it was like a slice of life that is was so unique to Hollywood Boulevard then. Anyway, so I, I called these parties that I, we, we would throw, the Spotlight Club. And I think one of the first ones we had Christine perform. And I remember telling her, "Oh, you know, don't hold back. I mean, you don't have to. You don't have to filter yourself or <laughs> anything, please." So they come out on stage first. She's hog-tied to this pole between these two guys in diapers and wolf masks, and then they untie her and drop her on the little stage, and then they just piss on her face. And I'm thinking. Okay, great. Well, they didn't hold back. There was no filter there. <laughs> and I think the thing about Christine is Christine kind of represents our id and who we would want to be if we just didn't give a fuck. And I think that's very liberating to see, especially in such conservative times. The world has can sometimes have a strain of bigotry that's kind of a natural element of the human condition. I mean it's it's part of the horror and beauty of human existence. But sometimes that bigotry or small mindedness seems to swell out of hand a little bit. And I almost feel a moral responsibility to try and balance it out um, uh, with, with a little bit of cheerful depravity. And um, that's, that's what I think Christine does. And so that's why I endorse her so much. Christine should be canonized. She's a saint.
0: Yeah. I think it's, you know, let's put her, let's put her in Barney's. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Barney's history. is So the, the way the brand has grown and changed, when did you start? When did we start carrying you?
1: Very, very early on. I think um, 1998 or something before I started runway shows. And when I was just producing stuff in my studio in Hollywood Boulevard, Barney's was carrying me. So, and you know, I only had like maybe eight accounts or something at that point. But the accounts that I had, I mean, I, I wasn't I wasn't an idiot. I knew <laughs> I knew the stores that I liked, and I knew the stores that were discerning. And I was working with somebody in Los Angeles. I was working with a man named Charles Gallet, and I I I guess there's a new generation of kind of radical risk takers. But in those days, there was Tommy Peirce in Los Angeles and Charles Gallet in Los Angeles, and there's Albert Bilzerian in Boston. There was Maria Luisa in Paris. There was Joyce in Hong Kong, Mrs. Bernstein at Brown's. These were people that took risks and, and supported young designers and bought, you know, first collections. And they, and, and you know, they, they were pioneers, but they also had great noses too. They, they knew what had potential and they all kind of, and they all knew each other because they'd been going to sh- shows together forever. and, Charles kind of introduced me to this this circle and based on Charles' endorsement and support of me in Los Angeles, that's how I started selling internationally. And then, then after that, very shortly after that, because of that visibility, because I had a little bit of visibility... Sales agents from Italy showed up in Los Angeles and asked if I would, if I gave them a exclusive worldwide distribution, they would introduce me to a manufacturer and we would try and make something happen. And these were young people who had worked for a distribution for a company and they were ambitious and they wanted to start something on their own. Now, Their ambition mixed with my ambition is what made something like this work because they had something to prove just as much as I did. So it was a very, very small investment for everybody and it was very innocent So innocent that it almost seems unbelievable because it's hard to think of that kind of thing happening now with this oversaturation of design schools and designers. Anyway, so I went to Italy and manufactured, you know, like the first collections we just showed in in galleries that we rented in New York and Paris. And we just, you know, there were collections of like 13 pieces or something. And then it just gradually grew from
0: that. That's crazy. That was 24 years ago. What are you working on right now?
1: Right now we're pushing up pre-collection and I'm, I'm very proud of our pre-collections Our pre, you know, we don't put anything in our pre-collections that I, that I don't like. I mean, pre-collection a lot of times is stuff that's less sensational, but it's stuff that people really live with. And I like that. I like making stuff that, that stuff that I want. Stuff that I want to yeah. wear. The other thing too is like for
0: me right now, I think like, you know, this conversation conversations about like streetwear versus design, all the stuff I'm like, I don't really care about having a dialogue regarding that just because it's like, you know, to have any enthusiasm and any excitement towards fashion and to motivate people to have a dialogue and self-reflect and think about how they how they define themselves, create themselves is the best thing possible because there is this like mass conformity now where you kinda of like try make decisions based on trend and um i think that you know having some enthusiasm where people could say i I strongly hate that or that you could tell that they just live and breathe these brands i think it's good so it is survival of the fittest but i think it's like you know at least you know even with the ones that die off young they uh they still make impacts in their own ways i guess which is which is uh, which is good and seemingly enough these days
1: yeah this kind of generic streetwear thing It's fascinating for me because my generation defied the generation before it. And that's the way these cycles work. That's the way of the world. Each generation has to define themselves by defying the generation before it. And I've been waiting. I'm thinking, okay, it's about time now. Somebody's supposed to defy me. And I I see that. I see this kind of generic streetwear thing defying things that I supposedly stand for. And I don't disapprove at all. I mean, I've been kind of, you know, it's about time, but, um, you know, it's supposed to confuse me. It's supposed to challenge me and make me uncomfortable. And it's supposed to make me disapprove, which I never will because I'm just so conscious that I'm supposed to disapprove, but, but there is kind of an element of that happening now. And why I disapprove of it to a certain extent, but on the other hand, I kind of cheer it. Cause I'm thinking, okay, well, that's kind of a good move. That's kind of like, that's a good slap in my face. And I kind of, you know, that's what you're supposed to do. I like that.
0: <laughs> I mean, I, and I, I agree. It's, it's, I like, and I like being uncomfortable that's mm. it's co- being comfortable freaks me out. You know, it's like, I want to be a little bit, you know, taunted and you know, a shock. Bullied. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So aside from talking to me, um, what has been uh, your best moment uh, do you think throughout your career or most surprising?
1: Oh, most surprising. I don't know. I've had a lot of hives. I've had like a, I've I've had a wonderful time, uh, but you know, th- it is kind of a, this year, this past year, I did get that retrospective and I got a CFDA, what is it? A lifetime achievement award. And that was, that was a surprise. And it was, it was kind of, it was surprisingly validating, but and it's not so much you know it's not just the glamour of being recognized it's 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 kind of those things are kind of they just make you think you know uh what have i done and who am i and um and how long have i got left so it's weird (laughs)
0: I can't thank you enough for taking time to talk to me and and do this. This was really nice, Matt. Thank you. The Barneys Podcast is produced by Barneys and Transmitter Media. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show. It helps other people find us. Thanks for listening.
1: The next time there's a good movie like I, Tanya, you can come over and we'll cuddle up and watch together. (laughs) (laughs)